following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Go back to your seats, please. I promise there's plenty of time afterward to keep talking and fellowshipping. I'm glad you're excited. Let's study God's Word together. So grab your Bibles. If you need one, there are uh, plenty next to you on your seats. Uh, make sure to keep, take, keep, keep that, take it home with you if you'd like it. That's our gift to you. We're going to be in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. So 1 Peter is towards the end of the Bible. The large numbers on the pages are chapter numbers, and the small numbers are verse numbers. We're going to be in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11. We've been our, in our study of 1 Peter for some time now, and you'll notice as we read, uh, likely in your translation or in your version, verse 11 and 12 are on one paragraph, and your, your translation has probably taken verses 13 and onward under a new paragraph and probably a new heading. Uh, but the themes that really run uh, from verse 11 down to verse 25 are pretty consistent. So we're going to take those things together. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 25. Let's read God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like straying sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, who suffered for us on the cross, 
who has given us an example to follow, who is the suffering servant, leading us in our own suffering, guiding us along the way of our pilgrimage, as sojourners and exiles, as strangers and aliens, we now ask God that you would arm us and fill us with joy and grace so that we would more faithfully walk in light of the truth of your word in this world. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever showed up to a new place for the first time, unfamiliar, and, and wondered, what am I doing here? This is, this is, I don't belong here. This is not for me. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe church is so foreign to you, you recognize this is not my place. This is not where I belong. First, welcome, and we're glad you're here. Uh, secondly, you do belong. But there's many examples in our lives where we've come across this idea of showing up at a place and not feeling like we're part of that community. Church is an example. School can be another one. Remember your first day in school, getting off the bus, you look up at this giant building, you walk into the, to the building, and there's kids everywhere, and they seem to know what to do. They seem to be knowing what, where to go. They've got their backpacks and their books, and they're just going, and you don't know who to talk to, who to ask. You're not sure what your uh, itinerary is telling you to do, and so you're just standing there lost like a little sheep, needing someone. Or maybe it's when you've gone to a crowded public place, like a zoo or a stadium, and you don't know where your seat is or how to get there. You, you feel lost. You don't feel like you belong there. The people are speaking a different language. You started a new job, and the person's training you and telling you to pick up this widget and do the thing with that, and you're like, I haven't even gone through orientation. I don't know what this means. Well, think for a moment also as a foreigner or an immigrant. Many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, pour into our country every year. They step off the plane. Quite often they don't speak our language. They don't know our roads. Some of them have never met an American in their life. And it's all new to them. In a very real sense, they're foreigners. They're strangers and aliens in our country. And they need to be taught and led and guided so that they can assimilate into our culture, so that they can learn how to drive maybe on the right side of the road or to learn how to ask politely where the bathroom is or these sorts of things. And maybe you've had this experience when you've gone on a mission trip or you've uh, had a duty in another, another country where you've been the stranger and the alien in a strange place. Well, Peter's drawing on that experience that we all have from time to time and he says, that's what you're like as a Christian in this world. You're a sojourner. You're, you're an alien. He says in, in the very first chapter, you're an exile, which means you don't belong here. This world's not your home. You have a different nation. You have a different country, a far country. You're a stranger in a foreign land. Peter says, you should conduct yourselves as a stranger. You should live as a sojourner, where you know that this world is not your home, but it's your dwelling place for a time. And to put yourself in the mind of an alien or a stranger, uh, an immigrant, or someone who's new or lost, at odds culturally with everything around them, how do you navigate what the world looks like? How do you make sense of your life when everything seems contrary to what you've already learned and understood about life. 
when the language, the very language you speak, no longer makes sense to you. As Christians, something fundamentally happens to us when the Lord saves us. Now, we may look the same on the outside. We may not change our dress necessarily, and our language doesn't necessarily change from English to some heavenly language, but we do change. We are very much transformed. Our citizenship no longer primarily resides us here on this earth, but places us as a citizen of heaven, the kingdom of heaven that's become the new heavens and the new earth. Our desires change our loves and our passions, and yes, even the way that we speak, it's transformed. And so you find yourself pretty quickly at odds with the way things were. What you knew or thought you knew, what you've experienced before, now is totally different with the way that you look at the world. And you have to navigate this. You're left with a million questions, and you're left standing there at the platform. The train has gone, and you think, what do I do now? Well, God is gracious to us and that he's given us his word to help us navigate this world. And he's given us the body of Christ so that we can navigate this world together. So one of the first things we need to understand that as a Christian, we exist in a community, an exilic community, a community of foreigners and strangers in the world for sure, but we at least have one another together unified as one body, one man, Christ who is our head, guides us leads us as we make our way through this world. But God's word, and here in Peter chapter 2, we see some specific things that Christians should take arms with so that they can make their way through this world faithfully. The main idea this morning is this, that through the gospel, Christ has transformed us so that our lives will lead to the transformation of others. In the gospel, Christ has so transformed us that we would live in such a way that our own lives, the examples of our godliness, our allegiance, and our affection to God and his word will be the leading of others, Lord willing, to their transformation. It means that the way of the Christian life will necessarily run counter to the way of the world. The way of Christ is not always congruent, often incongruent with the way of the world. You felt these pressures, and Peter reminds his readers that these pressures will only increase. Persecution will only ramp up for these brothers and sisters. In fact, he writes this under the emperor Nero, who becomes one of the worst persecutors of the Christians in the first century. He plagues the Christians. He kills them. He sends them to the slaughter. He blames them for fires. He reproaches them. He insults them. He even seeks to in their lives. He's writing to Christians under this circumstance and says, it will only get worse. You have to face this culture. We're born into culture. We're born into our world, right? We're not born in heaven. We're born on earth. We're born to our earthly parents in an earthly culture with stained and marred by sin. And there's nothing we can do to remove ourselves from it until the Lord calls us or comes for us. So we have to reconcile our transformation as Christians with a hostile, sinful world that increasingly turns its hostility and its sinfulness against us as Christians. 
Now, for sure, in our part of the world, we live a fairly pleasant life, all things considered. Brothers and sisters who are Christians in other parts of the world are suffering greatly under persecution. We pray for those Christians in Afghanistan, now under Taliban rule, who despite what they may say or promise, have already made threats and moves against the church, who have been forced to hide underground. We pray for our pastors there and for the church, for boldness, courage, faithfulness. But they have to ask the same question we do, though our cultures and our circumstances are very different. How? As Christians, am I to think about the world in which I live? And this leads many Christians, and it has from the very beginning, to lots of different conclusions about what to do about it. And I'm not here to give you the right answer. There are lots of books we can recommend to that end. But there are three large categories. It will be an oversimplification of, of sorts. But three large categories that many Christians have approached to culture. I'm going to give credit here to Dr. Richard Niber, who wrote in a book called Christ in Culture. First, the approach to culture is against culture. In other words, this is a counter-cultural mindset. That is, Christians or the church would seek to form their own culture, standing against the culture of the world. Their own music, their own arts, their own education, their own communities and neighborhoods and housings, their own way of life separated from the world. Now, this isn't difficult to understand why. We see that Christianity was born out of the Jewish religion, and the Jews themselves were a sect, and they were happy to be separated from the rest of the Gentile, pagan, unclean world. And the Romans didn't mind either. So long as they were happy, they didn't bother them. So Christians naturally would think, is that the way we should live? Cut ourselves off from the world, which is hostile towards us? Many Christians in the first several centuries began to move out to the desert, set up their own monasteries and communities, and live completely off the grid, as it would. That's one approach, and it's countercultural. Christ against culture. But the second approach would be Christ in or with culture. I would call this paracultural. That is, instead of forming our own culture, we, in some respects, conform ourselves to culture. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean we compromise the gospel or compromise our faith to be more like Christians or, or the world, but we find some goodness in the world. We find that it's far easier to attract more flies with honey, as it were, and so we recognize that we are going to win more souls if we're more like the world. So there's a paracultural worldview as well. But thirdly, there's what I would call sort of a supercultural approach to culture. That is, Christ over culture. Christ exists over culture. And instead of forming our own or conforming ourselves to culture, we seek then to transform culture through love and hospitality and service and humility. Now, of the three, I think this Christ over culture is the closest to what Peter is getting at. But we should be careful even still not to divide what we've distinguished in these three 
worldviews. I mean, there's been books written critiquing these things, and you can read them and peruse them at great length. But in truth, there's elements that we can take from each one of these approaches. The Scripture calls us to adopt several different viewpoints as we interact with the world. Jesus tells his disciples to be in the world, but not of it. Well, therein lies the problem. He also tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. And so we can't leave the world. We have to be in the world and engage culturally somehow in order to make disciples. But Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that we should strive to live a quiet and peaceful life, to not stir up strife with other nations. So we can look at these these options and certainly see good and not so good approaches to them. Well, hardly ever, ever, anything is ever a one-size-fits-all thing in the Christian life, but, but here's the idea that we have to begin to learn how to navigate this world, as Peter says, as strangers and as aliens, as sojourners and as exiles. And we have to do that in a way that takes into account the reality of the tension of this world and the next. It takes into the reality of a world that's hostile to Christ. And if hostile to Christ, hostile to Christ's disciples. And yet we have to do that in a way in where we long to see the redemption of the world, restoration and renewal of the culture around us without compromising the mandate to be witnesses and ambassadors for Christ. So Christians will therefore always live with this tension between the world that is and the world to come. There will never be this true equilibrium that we'll experience this side of eternity. Instead, we have to live, I think Peter says, as transformed people, holding out the reality and the hope of Christ's transforming powers at work within us and at work within the world. What is the promise that Jesus makes to his disciples? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We, friends, overcome the enemy. We overcome the world by holding out the triumph of Christ's reigning glory. We hold that out as hope for all those who God would draw to himself. That's the faithful navigating of this world that Christians are called to do. And so the question we ask is how? How are we then called to do that? How are we called to be different and distinct from the world, but also seek to transform the world, work for the renewal of our communities and our culture for the glory of God? Well, first, look at verse 11. Peter tells us that we are to wage war against the flesh for the sake of your soul. He says, be subject, excuse me, 11, a beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We are to fight a battle against the lusts and the desires and the passions of our flesh if we are to navigate this world faithfully 
as sojourners, as strangers, aliens. Indeed, this already puts us at odds with the world. It's a strange thing indeed for someone to be more concerned with the eternal and not the temporal. How strange it is for you to think of weightier matters like your soul and not how you can gratify the flesh in this moment. Just beginning to think about what happens after death and if there's anything you should do in this life to prepare for it automatically puts you in direct contrast with probably 99% of the people you know. But Christians have been given the answer. Your souls are eternal. You will live after your body dies. And you will sit before the Lord on his judgment day or on the day of visitation, what Peter says here. And you will give an account. And your sins will number up against you and only Christ will be able to forgive you of your sins. We must wage war against our flesh, the passions of our bodies, because it is a war for our souls. What does Jesus say? What profit is it? The man would gain the whole world, but lose his soul. He who finds himself loses it, but he who loses his life finds himself. This is what it means to be a Christian to take as utmost priority the war which you have been conscripted to. You don't get to sit on the sidelines. This isn't a voluntary war. This is one you've entered into, and the enemy, as Genesis chapter 4 tells us, is crouching like a lion. He sits at your door, ready to pounce. Peter will say elsewhere that the devil prowls around like a lion, ready to kill, destroy. And so you have to be ready. You have to take up arms against the enemy. Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 to arm yourself and put on the full armor of God, defending yourself from the fiery darts of the enemy. You take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and wage war against the flesh, the devil, and your sin. So you make a commitment. You make a commitment to wage war for the sake of your soul against all the sin that still resides in your heart, mind, and your body. And that firm belief that your soul is eternal and that needs to be one because another being is trying to take it, it will shape radical commitments in this life. It means that you will indeed at times run intentionally countercultural to the culture around you. You wage war. You fight. Notice the word he uses here is abstain from the passions. This is an active word which means actively, consciously take measures to not sin. This isn't a passive mortifying of the flesh. I dare say there may not be a passive mortifying of the flesh. This is an active taking up arms against the enemy. Fight. Notice that the war is against us. It's for your soul. And the war is not against culture or the people outside. It's not about the world out of these doors. 
No, the war is against sin. The war is against the remaining darkness, which the light works to expel. Sin which resides even in our own members. Peter uses the term passions of the flesh. Paul uses a similar term, passions of the flesh or fruits of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Turn there just for a second and look at some of the things that he talks about. Some of them you'd expect, of course, but there are many others. Chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh, he calls them, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. We expect this when we think of the term passions of the flesh, but notice he goes on. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not even an exhaustive list. I warn you as I warned before that those who do, do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This small, incomprehensive list, not only are the sorts of things will keep you from heaven, but are the very things that we are called to wage war against. Not the political party in current favor, not your neighbor who listens to loud music at night or wears different clothing than you prefer. It's not the culture, quote-unquote, it's sin. Now, our culture is marred by sin, and it's often celebrated, and so we can understand why sometimes those two things can get confused. And where culture celebrates sin, we rightly condemn sin and culture. But the war is not against your neighbor. The war is against sin. So we must take up arms against the passions of the flesh. This lists sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, but even idolatry, anger. You get angry ever? You got to kill that. Jealousy. You ever want something somebody else has? Jealous of what they have, where they're at, how happy they seem? Got to kill that. Rivalries, dissensions. Definitely got to kill that. Drunkenness and things like these. The list could go on. So it's not just sexual things that P- Peter has in mind here. It's all of the sin that affects not just your, your body, but your mind that entices your heart. Know, friends, that you have to be about the work of killing sin, waging war. John Owen, one of my favorite Puritans, has said famously, be killing sin. Can someone finish it? Sin will be killing you. That's true. So the first thing we're to do, to be distinct from the world, but also work to transform the world, has to be wage war against the flesh for the sake of your soul. You will not win souls for Christ. You will not transform the culture around you if you are so much like the culture that you are mired in sin. When you are engaging, not in war, but in union with the passions of the flesh. Secondly, if we are to be different and distinct from the world and seek to work for the transformation of our culture, we must live honorably, verse 12, enticing the nations to the beauty of Christ, to the beauty of our lives. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, 
That's interesting. Among the Gentiles. So you have to be among them so they can see your conduct. Don't go to a monastery. Don't live on a hill and then cover your light with a basket. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's literally beautiful. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they slander you or seek to to revile you, they may see your good deeds even in the midst of that and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is when Jesus inspects and judges. You're to live honorably. If you're waging war against the flesh and you live honorably, you are working to transform the world. There's no guarantee of when, where, how. But God has sent you into the world for this particular purpose, to kill sin and to win souls. Live honorably. And in this, you entice these nations to the beauty of Christ because your own life takes on an aroma that's pleasing, the fragrance of salvation, Paul would say, to those who are being saved, who God is calling to himself. They'll look on your life and they'll smell something pleasing. But to those who are perishing, They'll see your good deeds, and it'll stink to them. And Jesus will come on the day of his visitation, on his return, and he will judge. But we are to live honorably among them, to conduct ourselves in an honorable way so that they will see our works, see our deeds, even that in the face of suffering, persecution, trial, and they would glorify God. Perhaps not in this life, but they will Give an answer. So how do we live honorably then? Peter then goes on. In verse 13, verse 18, we live honorably by living under authority. Now, I've got to tell you right now, I'm going to leave a lot of things on the table about this. I'm not going to tell you what to do with the vaccine or what you need to understand about masks. You can go back and listen to Paul Abdullah's message on Romans 13. It was really good. Instead, I simply want to admonish you where you need to be admonished and exhort you would need to be exhorted that you would, as Peter says here, to live under authority. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he's talking about institutions here, not just the government, but he'll talk about the workplace, the civil. He'll talk about family. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or do governors are sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He says again in verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Again, look in verse 1 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. We'll get more to that next week. I've punted that one to Jake, who is a faithful, good husband, and so I have much to learn. There would be subject, he says. So you are to live honorably, verse 12, by living as one under authority, to be subject to every human institution, to subject yourselves to those who even seek to do your harm. That is, we are to pursue submission, put on humility for the Lord's sake. Not so that you would look like the martyr celebrated among those who also have this martyr complex, but for the Lord's sake, that he would receive glory 
by those who see you and by those who will answer for what they've done to you. Submission and humility must be put on as garments of the Christian as they submit themselves to every governing authority. There is an air of humility that we must possess at all times. Sorry to say that for the most Christians that I see, it's not true. It's not always true even in my own life. But it's certainly not true when we turn to matters which we think God maybe doesn't care much about. Matters of politics. It's not God's job to save the world, it's ours. Matters of health, matters of family. No, we need to subject ourselves as those under authority with real, genuine humility for the Lord's sake. And this is not just to only supreme emperors. It makes sense, of course, to submit yourself to the highest ruler of the land under Christ. But he says not just to those, but to the governors that are sent by him. They carry out his orders. He's been given a mandate by God. Every government and every ruler has been given a mandate to do, to punish evil, to praise those who do good. And so the emperor does this, the president does this, and so does everyone down at the local level. Be subject to the greatest, to the least, if they have authority and they are over you in authority, subject yourselves to them in humility. Try to find the exception here. Wives, find the, the exception. Democrats, Republicans, find the exception. Employees, find the exception. You won't. Submit yourselves to every governing authority from the greatest to the least. Now, okay, the question will be, naturally, I think, and I hear you asking, well, what if these rulers go beyond the scope that they've been given to do? What if they are no longer praising who does good and they're only praising the wrong? They're no longer punishing evil, but they're celebrating evil. Then do I have to obey them? I think you know my answer when I told you to look for an exception. The answer is no. You have to obey them. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Are masters allowed to be unjust? No. In the Old Testament law, there was rules for how masters should teach and train their slaves. You had to do, deal with them faithfully. To deal with them unjustly, harshly, was a sin. And yet here's Peter telling them, servants, slaves, and this, this household slaves he's speaking to here, be subject to your masters with all respect, reverence, deference, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so just because a government or an authority or a ruler oversteps their God-given boundary and does something you don't agree with or you think they don't have the ability to do, deference needs to be given. Submission requires humility but is obeyed by God's word. So how are Christians to navigate this? Well, look at verse 16 then. He tells them that they are free in Christ, but they need to use that freedom in a way that honors those to whom they are subject, not seeking rebellion against them. It grants them this true liberty, not to do whatever they'd like, to throw off the shackles of authority, but rather to honor God by submitting themselves to the authorities God has placed in their life. 
even unjust rulers are placed in our lives by God. If you don't think so, you have a low view of the sovereignty of God and you haven't read the book of Daniel, think of Nebuchadnezzar. You've been given freedom, not so that you can rebel, not to justify your attempts to sabotage, but rather to love in humility those in authority over you, even in the face of injustice. Now, there's lots of practical ways this is going to work out, and I trust you'll have good and helpful discussions at Community Group and this week and onwards about what that could look like. But our freedom we've been given in Christ is not to be used to say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't agree with that. That's not a biblical mandate. No, our freedom in Christ allows us to submit humbly to those in authority over us. I think verse 17 is encapsulated pretty well by Martin Luther's observation. Verse 17 will say, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Yes, short and sweet. And Martin Luther says this, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. That's our freedom in Christ. We have no Lord but Christ. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's a powerful paradox of the Christian life. And Peter doesn't make any bones about it. You have freedom, but not freedom to rebel against authority God has put in your life. And so we honor all men as image bearers. We honor them. We love them and show honor to them, all men and women, as image bearers of God. But then we give special affection to those who are of the household of faith. Love the brotherhood. Love those who are in the household of faith. We're told to revere God as the ruler of all things, judge of all things. And lastly, to give deference and honor to those in authority over us. We honor all made in the image of God, We give affections to those in the household of faith. We revere God as ruler and judge of all things, and we give deference and honor to those in authority over us. So one of the first ways that we are to live honorably in this world is to humbly submit ourselves to the authority over us. Secondly, we live honorably in this world Let in our light so shine before others that they may see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. As Matthew 5 says, we do this through our suffering. And suffering inevitably will come. As you submit yourself to unjust rulers, that means you will suffer injustice. We may wait for the Lord to return and come and give vengeance, and indeed vengeance is of the Lord, and he will right every wrong, and he will make right every injustice done to his people and to the innocent. But in the meantime, as the Lord tarries, we will suffer as those who suffer at the hands of unjust rulers when we submit to them. So we honor others by submitting and they praise God and they see the beauty of our life and the beauty of Christ through our suffering. In verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. This means it's a credit to you When you're mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. And to this you've been called, verse 21, because Christ suffered 
And like our Savior, so too his disciples. So it's a praiseworthy thing. And it's to our credit to endure injustice for righteousness' sake. Think of the apostles as they were beaten and put in jail. And when they were released, what did they do? They celebrated. They gave thanks that they were counted worthy for the reproach of Christ. This is a praiseworthy thing that God would so fit us and equip us to love and serve others that he might be glorified in our endurance and in our suffering. Not as weird sort of masochists, but as those who humbly submit ourselves to God, his word, and when necessary, to those in authority over us. And we do this because we imitate Christ our Lord. You have been called to this kind of suffering, Christian, because Christ also suffered for you. He's your example that you might follow in his steps. Friends, we are no more like Jesus than when we are suffering, when we are enduring hardships with grace and patience, when we are trusting the Lord. He, verse 22, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God will vindicate his son. God will vindicate his people. Indeed, he has, indeed, he will. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we have been healed. No, Christ sets the example of what a suffering servant looks like, humbly submitting himself to the rulers and authorities who acted wickedly and unjustly by putting him to death. And he didn't sin once. He didn't open his mouth and revile those who opened their mouth to revile him. He didn't threaten them. You better wait until I return. My dad's going to get, you know. What did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. I don't know what they do. We are no more like Jesus than when we suffer for righteousness' sake. So when you live humbly in this world, you submit yourself to even unjust rulers, the world will notice. And those whom God has drawn to himself will glorify him. And those whose hearts are hardened against him will answer for it on the day of Christ's visitation. But we, friends, are called, that's a calling on our lives to imitate Christ in our suffering, in our enduring. It's inevitable that it will come. Notice in verse 12, it says, when they speak against you. It's not an if, but a when they speak against you as evildoers. Don't revile in return. Don't threaten. Don't condemn. But be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So the summary is this, Christians, if we seek to live distinct in the world, so that as we work in our culture, we will see the transformation of it for the glory of God. This means that we must commit ourselves to our faith, working itself out through love and humble service to all people. The name of the game is humility and service, not pride, not arrogance. You will not take the kingdom by power. Christ will establish it, and he's shown us the way. Humility, grace, submission, even death. But God raised him from the dead. 
And he says, he will reward those that give their life for the kingdom. He will reward those who follow in the footsteps of the Son of God. And though we may not today be threatened with our lives because we're Christian, there may be a time fairly soon where that may be the case, where the pressures will mount and we have to make a public decision to follow Christ or conform to the world. We must commit ourselves here to our faith working itself out through love and humble service to all. So we are strangers. We're aliens and exiles. This is not our home, but we're called to suffer for a little while while we trust that God who is just will one day vindicate his people. So where is our home? Well, it was paradise. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see what paradise looked like perfect union and fellowship with God. But paradise was lost in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and from that day we have not been able to achieve perfect union with God until Christ came. And in Christ, you and I get the taste of what that paradise will be like. Jesus will return, and all those who have been united to him by faith will be welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth, this kingdom which is, again, perfect, which will be paradise for his people. And the world will be transformed, made new, and that will be our true home. So brothers and sisters, as exiles, as aliens and strangers, put your eyes and focus on that. As you do not conform to the world, as you abstain from the passions of the flesh, but keep your eye on the hearts of your neighbors, seeking their good and their transformation as you hold out the beauty of Christ with your own lives. Pray that Christ would return so that he establishes his own culture and his own kingdom, perfect and for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the promise of your son's return. Many questions are left for us about the specifics of our culture, matters of church and state, matters of abortion, civil disobedience, lots of nuance to think through about how a democratic republic understands and lives out these things. We pray for those who live very much under an autocratic regime like Nero, that they too would have the wisdom to walk faithfully as Christians in this world, which is not their home. But God, would you humble us and forgive us where we have not been humble and submissive to our authorities? Would you help us to be more wise and more godly in our dealings with others in the words we say? that as we suffer, we would not then turn and revile those who seek to harm us, but rather we praise God and give thanks to be counted worthy to suffer reproach for Christ. Father, we trust you for all these things and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If
if you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.